Welcome to the weekly deep dive podcast on the Add-On Education Network, the podcast where we explore the weekly Come Follow Me discussion and try to add a little insight and unique perspective. I am your host, Jason Lloyd, here in the studio with my friend and this show's producer, Nate, watch out for sharks, Piper. It's unique. <laughs> it's great. It's unique. If nothing else, it's unique. No, I, I, I think there's a... I know my mom was, was deathly afraid of sharks for a long time as well. Wouldn't go in swimming pools. and I, I think Jaws did that to a lot of people. Do you know what I did last night? What's that? I stayed up till like 2 in the morning looking up pictures of prehistoric sea monsters. Megalodon? Yeah, of course, Megalodon. <laughs> did you know, though, that the blue whale is bigger than anything that has ever lived on this planet? I did not. I learned that last night. Well, thank you. And like most, I learned that most land animals, including humans, are all smaller than the tongue of a blue whale. Holy smokes. Like elephants and everything. Included. Wow. Is that not bonkers? They're massive. They're so huge. It's terrifying. Like, Like whales don't even care about us. There was a guy earlier this year that got swallowed by a whale, too, on accident. Don't lie. I don't think he got swallowed. He got put in the mouth. He was sitting swimming, and all of a sudden, a whale came up underneath him trying to eat the krill or whatnot. And then it just went dark, and then he realized he was in the whale's mouth. And he's like, oh, shoot. What did he do? The the whale spit him out. I don't. I don't remember how long he was there for. Look it up. It was in the news. It was. Uh, All right, I'll look it up. About a month ago. It was a crazy story. It, made, it you know reminded me of Jonah. I know, but it's it's funny because I actually love that. I love the story of Jonah and the whale, even if I'm not 100 percent convinced that I should take it literally. I'm not. I'm just. I'm not saying it is or isn't. I'm just saying I'm not convinced that I have to 100 percent take it literally. But what you just told me adds at least a little bit more information to the story. Yeah, taking it literal is going to be kind of hard with all the uh, stomach acid and whatnot living down there. I don't know. But there's a lot of symbolism there, whether it's literal or not. So I cannot wait for Old Testament next year. Oh, yeah. Old Testament's going to be great. Well, before we get into Old Testament, uh, we're diving into Doctrine and Covenants sections 81 through 83 in this episode. And I know last episode I told you I was done with Doctrine and Covenants section 76, rearview mirror. We're going to leave it behind. But I could not help but 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 go there one more time. When we went through the verse about they shall be gods, the sons of God, and, and I quoted from the Testament of Adam, and, and I had the, the version from the Book of the Cave of Treasures, I knew I had a better version somewhere. So that, that was kind of bothering me after that episode. I went home, and I was searching and trying to find where that was, and I remembered it's it's in my Old Testament Pseudepigrapha Volume One book, which I unfortunately lent out to a friend of mine a few years back, and and he moved to Canada, and and when I asked for the book back, he lost it. So, from from the time of the last episode, I jumped on Amazon. The book was out of print, but I was able to find it, order it, and now I have the version of the Testament of Adam here. I just wanted to give you a little context to it and, and just hit that, uh, read it from from here 
before moving into this uh, this section. Let's hear it. Okay, so the oldest manuscript, they believe that the the original came from Palestine or Syria, uh, somewhere in that area. Uh, The oldest manuscript's 930, somewhere in that area, A.D., and you might think that's kind of late, but think about this: the oldest complete manuscript of the Bible until they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls was um, was the Aleppo and the Leningrad Codex, dating 930 A.D. and 1008 A.D. So, so even the Bible's not particularly that old, with the exception of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And and when scholars try to date this document, uh, they they give it a a date where it says it has to have had happened after a hundred. Um, 100 AD because of the things that it references about Christ's life that that are unique to the New Testament. So they say it could not have been written earlier than 100 AD, although some of the traditions and some of it looks like it could have been from a Hebrew tradition dating back even further. Um, But they also found some documents that quote this book in 300 AD. So they know it's between 100 AD and 300 AD that this this document was circulating. So early Christianity, before the Council of Nicaea, you have this document that was going around in Christianity. And in it, I'm just going to read... This is, again, Adam speaking to his son, Seth. Uh, we talked about how he's gathering his posterity before he dies. And I'll just read it straight out of the, the document here. It says, He spoke to me about this in paradise after I picked some of the fruit in which death was hiding. Adam, Adam, do not fear. You wanted to be a god. I will make you a god. Not right now, but after a space of many years. I am consigning you to death, and the maggot and the worm will eat your body. And I answered and said to him, Why, my Lord? And he said to me, Because you listened to the word of the serpent, you and your posterity will be food for the serpent. But after a short time, there will be mercy on you, because you were created in my image. And I will not leave you to waste away in the spirit world and Sheol. For your sake, I will be born of the Virgin Mary. For your sake, I will taste of death and enter the house of the dead. For your sake, I will make a new heaven, and I will be established over your posterity. And so he tells Adam, you and your posterity are destined to be gods. It's crazy. Yeah, it's it's kind of cool to see something like that survive from, from early Christianity. And, and it makes it seem not so crazy that, that Joseph Smith is restoring these truths in, in Doctrine and Covenants today. It's awesome. All right, let's, uh, let's dive into today. Um, first off, let's talk about Doctrine and Covenants section 81. Um, this is interesting because the, the original revelation was not about Frederick G. Williams. Uh, he didn't exist at all in this document. Instead, it, it was about a guy named uh, Jesse, uh, let's see, Goss. And, and nobody knew anything really about Jesse Goss. And, and I've got uh, uh, from my, my grandparents, they, when my grandma passed away, I inherited a bunch of books from their library. And in there, my grandpa had a book, uh, Doctrine and Covenants Commentary by uh, um, Sh- uh, Sholo, Shodal. Sorry, if that's not how you say his name, Shodal, I believe. And, and in the commentary, see, Doctrine and Covenants section 81, it says that Frederick Williams is, is being called to be in the first presidency. So this is the first time the first presidency exists in LDS history. 
um, in modern LDS history. And there's a second revelation a year later when Williams is actually called to the to the first presidency. So Shodal wasn't exactly sure how to handle this revelation, mentioning his calling to the first presidency when he's actually called to the first presidency a year later. So in here he states, this is probably the Lord preparing him for his future calling. But in all actuality, so this was published in uh, 1978 or 1979. It wasn't until the 1980s the church discovered that this was actually about Jesse Goss. Um, and, and Jesse Goss was the original person that was called to be uh, probably the first counselor in the first presidency of the church. Joseph Smith was looking at building a Zion community. Jesse Goss was a member of the Shakers and the Quakers. He had a lot of experience with uh, with these communities, these utopias, if you will. And so Joseph was leaning on his expertise to help him put together this, this Zion. And he sent Jesse on a mission, and it, it, he was a new convert. He hadn't been a member of the church for very long. He, he went on a mission, and, and I'm getting the Shakers and the Quakers confused. I'm not sure which one it was. I, I want to say it was the Shakers at this time. And, and the mission, kind of like who we discovered, you talked about earlier this year in another episode, when he went there, he kind of decided to part ways with his companion, and that was the end of it. He left his church, and, and no one really heard anything else of him anymore. And so the revelation, they took it and they changed his name from Jesse Goss to, to now refer to Frederick Williams, and the revelation applied to Frederick Williams, who was called to the first presidency a year later after Goss disappeared. And it's kind of a weird thing. And, and you see parallels to it in ancient history when a pharaoh would take over in Egypt and they didn't like somebody or another pharaoh that w- was before them. They would, they would scratch out their names in all of the monuments, the graffiti and try to destroy them from the records to erase them from history. And that's essentially what's happening to Jesse here is his name is getting erased from the record and pulled out and and he is disappearing from, from LDS history. And, and it was extremely successful as nobody knew who he was or even that this revelation was about him until the 1980s when we kind of rediscover that and, and he finds his place back in in early LDS history. So kind of weird, uh, kind of interesting. And also <clears throat> a great band name, Jesse and the Shakers and the Quakers. <laughs> the Shakers and the Quakers, dude. The Shakers I can't get and off the that. I haven't heard a thing you've said for the last three and a half <laughs> minutes because I can't get past that. The Shakers and the Quakers, dude. It's going to be my next album. I, all I dance music. <laughs> Boots and cats. I can't, I can't wait to hear it. Oh, it's going to be dope. Boots and cats. Shakers and the Quakers. Our first song is going to be called Williams. What's that dude's name? Jesse Goss. But uh, no, Frederick no, no, G. Williams Frederick, is yeah, the one Frederick that replaced G, the, uh, Frederick G. Frederick G. and the Shakers. But Frederick G. wasn't the, the Shaker. Jesse know, was the Shaker. whatever. I'm just trying to think of what rolls off the tongue better. Oh, boy. All right, let's keep going. Okay, and you know... Maybe we're flogging a, a dead horse at this point, but I can't help but think that this is an example of a talent being taken away and given to someone else. Uh, it totally sounds like it to me. Because here you have this revelation and this blessing from the Lord that if you're faithful, this is, and then all of a sudden that calling 
that responsibility uh, is taken from Jesse and literally assigned Given to someone Frederick, else. Yep. Frederick, yeah, Frederick receives into it. it and no, he, let's keep going. I like it. Two revelations. Yeah, that doesn't bother. That that totally works. Okay, the that's, shakers and the Quakers. The shakers and the Quakers. Keep your eye out. That's listeners. about all, that's about all I had for eighty one, and and I I'll keep my eye out for. Man, I'm going to start working on that right now. Like literally right now. Keep going with the podcast. I'm going to start working up some beats. Oh, oh dear. All right, 84, 84, 82. Verse 1, Verily, verily, I say unto you, my servants, that inasmuch as you have forgiven one another your trespasses, even so I, the Lord, forgive you. I think that's a critical key to understanding how forgiveness works. When you're willing to forgive someone else, it's, it's, it makes it easy for the Lord to look down and forgive you. If you're going to hold something against somebody and have a hard time forgiving them, then how can you expect the Lord to give you forgiveness in return? It's like that parable, dude. It's exactly like the parable. Ha <laughs> see? The, I, know, I know some things from the New Testament. You know a lot of things from the New Testament. I know some things. We started this a year late. We should have done New Testament know, last year. New Test- I love the New Testament. It's like for as much as you love the Old Testament, I just eat up everything in the New Testament. It's, it's, it's short, concise, but powerful. I think I, I try to read Jesus the Christ at least once every couple of years just to refresh how intensely incredible the, the New Testament is, especially the Gospels. But this, that's the parable, though. I the, know it. I know it's a parable. Definitely, right? The the servant that had a huge debt yep. and everything was forgiven, but in turn, he wouldn't forgive a very minor debt, and so his debt was recalled. And correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't the didn't the master or the king that let the servant off easy even though he owed him a ton of money that happened before that happened before he then went to not forgive somebody else like he had an example of mercy and kindness and charity and grace and all those things and even after that was like no you're gonna pay me the little bit that you owe me right yes you're right And, and i think it's significant that he had forgiven him first exactly and and when he goes back to him, having not forgiven the other, even though he was forgiven previously, the debt is recalled. Yeah. And, and the Lord makes that point here. Um, a little bit later when, when he says, you know, I, I forgive you, go your way and sin no more. But then he says, if you do sin, then then the previous things are going to come back and, and I'll hold those against you, even though I had once forgiven them. This idea that, yeah, you're forgiven, but if you go back... It, it, it somehow it's not completely gone. It'll show up again. Well, I think that that I tried to have this explained to me one time because I remember reading about this. And correct me again if I'm wrong. Probably not. But I think the idea is, if you repent of something truly, you don't do it again, right? If you if you truly have your heart changed to where you're no longer committing that sin. That's the final step of showing that, like, oh, yeah, I've repented of this. I've changed my ways. I am no longer burdened by this sin. But if we go and ask forgiveness for something and then we just keep doing it over and over and over, we never really repented in the first place. And I, Does that make sense? Yeah, or does, it does or make sense. Or is that sense. wrong? I, I, think you're, I think you're right. And, and maybe... It, it's hard to, uh, to apply it in a blanket statement because I think some people truly do 
repent and turn away and 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 they don't have a desire to do that and 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 it's all forgiven right it, it, for all intents and purposes it is done wiped clean whatever and as time goes on if they turn back to it cuz the thing is i think that i'm not i'm not even trying to i'm not actually trying to make even that big of a blanket of a statement as it might sound like i am mm. but i guess what i'm saying is i I try to ask forgiveness for just being a knucklehead with 100% like the understanding though that like Jesus you know I'm going to continue to be a knucklehead God you know I'm going to continue to be a knucklehead give me the strength to keep trying to overcome the demons you know and hoping that at the end of my life if nothing else I can at least show a track record of of slight improvement over time, right? And never giving up. Rick. That's what I'm saying. Like like the race, right? The the, the boy that, that keeps falling in the race and, and each time he gets up and keeps running. Yeah, and, and I think that what I'm saying is that I think there's a difference between that, which hopefully we're all trying to do, right? Mm-hmm. Knowing, like acknowledging like, oh yeah, we're going to totally keep blowing it all the time. And there's a difference between that and I went and punched a stranger in the face and then prayed and was like okay i feel really bad about that you know i'm sorry i've gone and i've talked to him and and i've tried to make amends and the whole thing and then being like man i feel that's cool i feel forgiven for this and then punching somebody in the face again it was just like oh oh, clearly clearly you hadn't quite fixed that the first time let's try again but yeah that's that hasn't been taken care of yet i don't know does that make any sense it does make sense and but i don't even know if there's a difference between those i'm just thinking out loud here yeah, and I'm I'm trying to think through this as well as we're we're talking about this. I think I think there is a possibility where you have someone that hits and, and quickly apologizes and says sorry and whatever to make it right, but isn't willing to address that they that this is a problem that they can continually do it and say sorry and whatever and and not willing to change that behavior or even work on that behavior. Then that, in that sense, I don't think it's truly repenting. But then you might have someone with anger issues who who their anger gets the better of them, and they hate how they react or they hate how they feel in that situation, and and they feel really terrible, and they're trying to avoid getting angry, avoid getting upset, or maybe working on okay, I'm going to count to ten, or I'm going to try to do this, and and they they really do make it right as best they can. And in that sense, I feel like the repentance process is complete. They, they've made it right because they, they're honestly trying to put this behind them. And then when they hit somebody in the face, even though the repentance process was complete, it's almost like it got erased and say, oh, well, well there's still something here. Let's keep working on this to get this all the way resolved. There's, uh, so yes, I think it, it almost oscillates between, yes, it is repentance or you know, it's not quite fixed. Let's keep going. I, think, I don't know. I think that you said it though. You said it's the process of it, right? Mm-hmm. So my thought in this, at least how I kind of visually see this, and how I um, how I see it, at least to the point where I don't just feel hopeless and give up. You know what I mean on a daily basis is that that even the word process is used with repentance process, right? And I know that we've always kind of thrown like all of the steps along the way, but one of isn't. I mean, there are steps in there that are like, yeah, you need to learn how to not do it again, right? Or I don't yeah. know. I don't yeah. I don't remember if that's part of it. But I guess my thought is like to your anger issue, 
example because heaven knows I have kind of a short fuse, especially when behind the wheel and various other things. Um, that the idea is is that as I am going along asking for forgiveness from the people that I have offended, I'm I'm not looking at that as the end of the process of repenting for that, right? I'm looking at that as a point along the way. And maybe that's just me trying to be sense. as honest with myself as possible, which is just like I'm hoping that before I die, I can truly say, well, cool, I'm so happy that I've finally, with the help of whatever it takes, overcome that heaven and whatever on this earth you know I can do to kind of make myself better about that, right? So I think that that's... I think that that's at least how I try to, because I've I've read through this stuff before and learned about it a lot, and it it actually can be very discouraging to be to be reading this and to say, "Cool, I've forgiven you for your sins," but then if you do it again, like all of the previous stuff is piled back in your backpack again, right? Yes, I'm just saying that can be so incredibly like disheartening and devastating to somebody that is trying to overcome a bad habit, a bad behavior, some some harder than others, right? And for me, I guess I try to look at it from the point of view or from the from the position or idea that we all know what our demons are and the process of that might take a little bit longer. But now I'm not as like, now I don't feel as burdened to go, well, yeah, now all of your past sins are still with you. I'm just like, I know. Like, yeah, for sure. And that's because I'm just trying to become better and better and better at it, hoping that at some point at the end of that actual process, it's a really easy thing to go, yeah, Heavenly Father, please forgive me for the years of being a knucklehead. Thanks for all the help overcoming that. I don't have the desire anymore to do that. Like, it's not reactionary anymore. It's not part of who I am anymore. I see. Thank you for saying that. And I see where you're talking. In verse 7, I think, is where the Lord says, He says, I will not lay any sin to your charge. Go your way and sin no more. And and we're familiar with that line from the Lord over and over again. In the New Testament, as we were talking about New Testament just a minute ago, the, the woman that they caught in the act of adultery, and the Lord says, I, neither do I condemn you, go your way and, and sin no more. We hear that phrase so often, and he follows it up this time with, the soul that sinneth shall the former sins return. And, and, and this idea of this overwhelming stack that you thought you got rid of just coming and weighing you down absolutely can be... Sometimes it can be like actual... Soul crushing, disheartening, right? Yes. I mean, if you take that quite literally, that can just be like, oh, then I don't stand a chance. You know what I mean? Because I don't. Right. Like, if that's, I'm saying it's like, if it's, but but again, if you look at it on a, a like commandment by commandment basis, it's a way easier thing to swallow, right? Yes. I've had friends that have told me some very personal things about absolutely making a mistake and absolutely having, um, specifically adultery issues with, you know what I mean, with their spouse and and whatever, and have had their spouse forgive them and and accept that as a mistake. And then the person 
that committed the sin truly walking away from that and being so devastated by that entire process that he is a completely changed person from that, right? And that he can walk away from that sin and sin no more. But if he were to go, well, that was kind of an easy way out. I'm going to go do it again. It's hard for me not to then go, oh, yeah, well, then clearly you didn't learn from it the first time. You know, it's like that's how I'm that's how at least I'm just trying to see how both of those things can work without just destroying you. you And and it's kind of a loop, right? Because, yeah, the soul that sinneth, the the former sins return. And I like the way you say it. Maybe not so much the former sins return as much as you still have a problem you haven't worked through all the way. You're still in the process. Yeah, you're still in the process. But as soon as you repent, you go right back to the beginning. I will lay. I will not lay any sins to your charge. Go your way and sin no more. Oh, you did. Okay. Well, you still have this issue. Yep. Work on it. Keep working on it. Yes. Chipping away. And and every time you do, I will not lay any sins on your charge that, anymore. Exactly right. I love how you state that. And 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 I feel like there's two conditions, right? One is that you're willing to repent and change. As long as you're willing to repent and change, the Lord is showing a willingness to work with us. And put that behind and, and and pretend like it never even happened. But also, and, and this is the point that he's driving, is you cannot be holding things against other people if you expect me to not be holding things against you. Forgive. Know that everyone else is in the same process that you are. And, and I, I love how he says it in the New Testament so many times. The measurement with or the judgment that you judge others is the same kind of judgment that you should expect to receive. And if you want God to sit there and hold everything against you, then go right ahead. Look at everybody else and start doing that. And it's it's not gonna be a pleasant day for you. I was watching this TV show and one of the characters is in, you know, AA or whatever. And it's funny because he said, he said something to the effect of, you know, when it's your first time there, it's a pretty harrowing experience because you go in thinking, I can't possibly, I can't possibly be as bad as everybody else here, right? <laughs> and then he's like, and then they, and then, but it's, if it's your first time, you have to, you have to do the spiel, right? You have to like, let it go. And then they, <laughs> he basically said, by, by the time you're done, by the time you're done being honest and open about that stuff, you're like, I'm worse than everybody. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it is it is it is an interesting it is an interesting thing whenever you go into you know what I mean, casting the beam when you've got the moat, you know. I don't know. Yeah, when you have that moat in your eye or the beam in your own eye yeah. and you're looking at all the, the yeah. Exactly. Anyways, I, I, I thought that was funny and kind of apropos to the idea that it's like, yeah, you should probably be. But here's the here's the interesting thing about it is that it honestly gives you a pretty awesome way out of getting judged too harshly in the next life, right? Hey, yeah. be cool to everybody. Hey, maybe maybe be that person that's actually really compassionate and understanding and forgiving and all those things. It looks like that's pretty much the blueprint, you know what I mean, on how to on how to have it not so hard in the next life when it's your turn to, to kind of get the, you know, the sins looked at 
Right. And, and if you want a shortcut to compassion, just take a hard look at yourself yeah. and, and start wondering, do I want people to know this about me? That's exactly right. Do I want people to see me like this? Do I want people to think of me like this? Do I want all of these things held out? And you're like, ugh. It, it, it makes it a little bit easier for you to look at somebody else with 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 eyes of compassion if it if it was me i wouldn't want anyone to know that i'm going to put that away or 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 use a little discretion around that well even when people when you're trying to explain like hey i know that i was wrong in this situation can i explain to you why i was wrong if you consider like cool maybe somebody wronged you it's hard to just imagine that most people are just jerks to be jerks right mm-hmm. it's just hard to imagine that I just don't believe that, to be totally honest with you. You know what I mean? Obviously, there's like the smallest fringe of people that are just psychopaths, but but your day-to-day person you meet, you never know, right? You never know if that if that policeman being a jerk to you had to scrape some kid off the freeway that morning and is having the worst day of his life. You know what I mean? Like you just, you, it's like no matter what it is, if you just consider when you've been mean to somebody or you've been honorary to somebody, but you probably had just a valid excuse too, I don't know, man. It just it makes it a lot. I don't know, makes it a lot easier, I guess, for me at least to try to chill out a little bit on other people. Try, yes, and, it, and especially when we screw up, like when we don't have a good excuse and we just plain shouldn't have done that, and you're like, oh shoot. Some of those are the worst ones where you, <laughs> you wish that like, I'm sorry, I wish there was a do-over. You know, the feeling you have when you just wish you could wake up and it was a dream? I feel like that for, I wish I, whatever, man. I wish I could have 20 years of my life back to to not blow it, but yeah. Well, and and the Lord, I think, is making this point, and he's going to balance this really well in this section, because at first he leads with, as you forgive others, I will forgive you. If you're willing to look past other people and see them for who they are and not hold it, I will do the same thing for you. And it almost seems like this blanket pass that you can do whatever you want as long as you let everyone else do whatever you want. And, and so he's got to kind of bring that in check and say, whoa, 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 at the same time, I've got to balance this with the idea that go your way, sin no more. But if you do, you still have an issue that needs to be worked on. I'm not going to just let that go. There's still, even though I'm going to look past it when you forgive other people. And and it's kind of funny the way he calls this back to their attention. And and, and maybe it's not funny, but I, I still laughed at it. I thought it was kind of funny because he says, he follows it up with, Nevertheless, there are those among you who have sinned exceedingly. <laughs> Yay! All of you have sinned, but verily. Oh, man. So, yeah, everyone screws up, but there's still some of you who have sinned a lot. Yeah, that's pretty much where I'm pretty sure I fit in. But, yeah, let's keep going. And he says, beware from henceforth, refrain from sin, lest sore judgments fall upon your head. And and I think that's an important point. He does say that that he will forgive us. He does say that he'll turn turn away and, and know that, we are working at being better and he's willing to work with us. And just because he won't hold any sin against us, just because there's no charge, doesn't mean that sore judgments aren't going to fall on us because of what we do. And, and he's trying to tell us, 
I'm not going to hold it against you, but that doesn't mean something bad's not going to happen as a natural consequence of the things that you're doing. It, you you might have a free pass in the end, but that doesn't mean that you're going to be avoiding these consequences in the meantime. Heaven knows that's true. All right. All right. Let's um let's move into verse 3. For for of him who much is given, much is required. That's a phrase I I believe we've We've heard many different ways. I, I think Marvel made that pretty uh, powerful with the Spider-Man. This this idea that much responsibility uh, comes with with knowing more, understanding more, or having more power in in a sense. And so, if, for unto him much is given, much is required. He who sins against the greater light shall receive the greater condemnation. And, and I can't read that without thinking of the Nephites and contrasting that with the Lamanites. Uh, this idea that one one group can get away with murder where the other group you apostatize a little bit here and and it's the end your your nation is wiped off the face of the planet and th- this idea that if you know more you're you're held to a higher standard this makes it sound like ignorance is bliss you cannot be saved in ignorance dude but you cannot be saved in ignorance i'm so i'm so glad you said that name oh you know you know I know. So, I, so I've got two quotes from Joseph Smith. He says, first, add to your faith knowledge, and the principle of knowledge is the principle of salvation. This principle can be comprehended by the faithful and diligent, and everyone that does not obtain knowledge sufficient to be saved will be condemned. Hmm. And he says, a man is saved no faster than he gains knowledge, for if he does not get knowledge, he will be brought into captivity by some evil power in the other world, as evil spirits will have more knowledge and consequently more power than than many men who are on the earth. So, yes, we are held to a higher standard, but that's a good thing. And, and we can't just say, well, I would rather not know because I don't want to be held to that. Well, if you don't want to be held to that, that's like the guy that buried the talents. And I'm sorry to go back to that again, but... Dude, it's an important parable, man. It, it is. Yeah, the guy didn't want extra responsibility. He didn't want extra talents. So he said, no, please, I'm going to hide these. Well, the Lord's going to take that away and give it to somebody else. The The key to salvation is push forward. Yeah, you get more responsibility, but that's how else are you supposed to be a God if you can't even be responsible over the little things? And let's not pretend that that can't have really amazing blessings in this life as well. And I know... We probably also like beat this to death too, I'm sure, over the various podcasts. But when you, man, all of the commandments that we follow, every single one of them is directly tied to maintaining your agency, whether it be from addiction, mm-hmm. whether it be from the law. You know, what I mean, like, yeah, yeah, we do follow a lot of rules. And all of them are there to go. If you follow these, if you on your own free will follow these guidelines, these rules, you can continue to maintain your agency and not become captive to anything. It's to liberate the captives. It's and and that's why it's. I I think that I think that it's such an incredible thing to gain knowledge and understanding in this life, so that you can better make decisions on how to continue to be free in the next life, obviously, and in this life. 
Yeah, that's a great statement. It's and a bless. It's a blessing. I'm just saying, it's a blessing. It's it's not. It's it's an amazing thing for somebody like me, who I have no doubt that I am an alcoholic that has never drank. I just I know myself. I know I'd like it too much. You know what I mean? I know myself enough to know that that had I not been taught and grown up with certain guidelines, I could be in a very 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 different place. Maybe not, maybe ignorantly sinning, right? Mm-hmm. To where maybe I'm not responsible for the for the testimony that I have or the knowledge of God that I I have, but in such a more miserable place in life, right? And again, that's that's not for everybody, but I just know me well enough to know that it's been such an incredible blessing to be responsible for some some even if it's a small feeble testimony something like i'm i'm okay being respond i'm being okay i'm i'm okay being held responsible for that and and that's how everything started from the beginning the get go right this idea of agency freedom can they choose for themselves or are they going to ruin themselves by doing that let me make the choice for them that's how it all started that's right and, and I love that you brought that up because verse 9, as the Lord's been talking about these things, he says, or in other words, I give unto you directions how you may act before me that it may turn to you for your salvation. And as we're talking about the sins and trying to liberate them, as we try, trying to work this out, as we try to figure out how to, to be better, to be our best selves, to not be weighed down, or, or to be free. Even if we make mistakes and we can't escape the consequences, the Lord's saying, if you listen to me, I will turn those to your salvation. We might not be able to escape the consequences, but some of those bad consequences are still going to be turned in such a way that it will save us or make us better because of it. And I can't help but think of the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. The, the, the partaking of the fruit, I can't, I, for me, I have a hard time thinking that God's whole plan hinged on somebody screwing up in order for his plan to work. I don't believe that that's what happened. I don't either. I, I have to think that God had a plan and that their decision was was for the worse, but God turned that for their salvation to where we we have what we have. Completely agree. We're also taught not to have sex before we get married. Mm-hmm. We're not taught not to have sex. We're taught don't have sex before you're married. You you could look at that and say, oh, we're commanded to multiply and replenish the earth, and we're commanded to not have sex. Well, yeah, if you if you don't take into consideration any of the context around that. I'm not 100% convinced that that even then that same idea or logic couldn't have applied in the garden where you say, don't partake of this fruit. Yes, in time you will be commanded to multiply and replenish the earth. Who's to say, who's to say that even in time the plan wasn't, hey, learn this first, mature in this first, do these things first, and then partake of the fruit? 
Right? It, yeah, exactly. How do we know that God wasn't willing to give them the fruit yes. at a time when they that's, were ready for it? And, exactly and instead right. of waiting for God, they they relied on someone else. They worshiped somebody else who was willing to give them the knowledge on the cheap rather than receiving it from the hand of God and at a quicker, time that was ready. Faster than they, like, they, you know, I mean, it's like, it is, it is funny too, because it's like, it could also be the first, like, I want it now, you know? Like, mm-hmm. oh, well, and it's funny too, because even... What Eve says is, well, first of all, eating the fruit would make them become like God, right? Mm -hmm. By the way, we're commanded to become like God, right? Yeah. I'm just saying like all of the things that partaking of the fruit would have enabled were all appropriate things, maybe just not right at that time that that was partaken. Right. I'm just saying, like, I also completely agree with you, and and I had such a hard time with this as a kid, and my parents did the best job they could at trying to explain it to me, even though my brain just couldn't comprehend it, and it took me being an adult to finally go, oh, to have it click, because I was so distraught over the idea that God basically set them up to fail. I, I I was distraught over that. I'm with you. And then, and then, and then again, it's like as you start looking at things in the bigger picture, you go, "Who we?" There's so much information that we didn't know, but that we actually have little verbal cues to, which is Eve saying, "Well, we are told to become like a god and to know right from wrong, and you know what I mean. All of these I see things. That this must be. That's that's exactly right. And to me, it's like, and even in that case, it even kind of makes. It, it kind of even makes Eve seem maybe even more mature in that situation. Mm-hmm. Adam basically was just kind of the blind, hey, God told us not to do this, so I'm not going to do this. Eve was kind of logis- like logically working through it a little bit. Yeah, she sinned. She did what she wasn't supposed to, but it's, it seems a lot less malicious when when you look at her reasoning for it. And and I look how God phrased the commandment. He says, of every tree you may freely eat, and, and by freely I mean eat without consequence, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you may not eat without consequence. Not that you can't eat it forever, just that you can't eat it without a consequence, because in the day you eat, you will die. There is a consequence, and we are not ready to cross that bridge yet. Or, or I am not. I am not commanding you to cross that bridge yet. That one you can't eat without consequence. And in my mind, as I read this story and as I think about it, if there is sin here, I don't know that it's necessarily that they partook of the fruit as much as who they listened to. That mm, rather than listening yes. to God, they listened to Satan and making the decision and what they were going to move forward with. And and I think the point of the story, and and we can dive into this as we get into Old Testament, but I think. That what what I'm trying to drive at is in this case, God says that he will, if you listen to him, and, and that's part of it, right? After they partake of the fruit, look, if you will obey me and keep my commandments, I will turn this for your salvation. I will take your mistakes and I will sanctify you because of them. Mm. And, and, and how many times we do something wrong and, and, and we wish we could take it back? But at the same time, isn't there a learning or an experience that makes us a better person because of it? And, and sure, maybe we would have been even better if we'd not done it. 
but in spite of doing it, we still get something out of it. And I think that's the Lord is sanctifying the process that if we listen to him, even those mistakes that we can't escape, he will turn for our salvation and we can benefit from them. And I, and I think that's beautiful to put that on the, the Adam and Eve is that even if it started off on the wrong foot, not that God was trying to force a bad situation, but because of their actions, the Lord was still able to turn something beautiful out of it. Yeah, totally agree. We talked about this a little bit when we talked about King David, right? Or, or, or maybe we didn't. Like the idea that it's like such a knucklehead. You know what I mean? It started out so great, such a knucklehead, but through his seed was Jesus. You know what I mean? Like ah, the salvation yes. of the world. Like I, I'm just saying like we, you have so many examples of even, even through these failed, flawed people – like the seeds of that can still be something that's that's beautiful. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I know we kind of talked about yeah, that. Yeah, past, you're right. right. We did. Yeah, it, that does sound familiar. And and at the core of all of it, the atonement itself, the act of taking a god and crucifying him. How 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 much worse does it get than that? And yet, on this crux, this moment hinges the salvation of all mankind. It, it's just a beautiful image, and yet it works at a very personal level, this idea that whatever ugliness or whatever rough patches we go through as humans trying to figure this out, yet he can sanctify that and turn it into such a beautiful thing that that, that we can be happy, that we can find rest in, in spite of our, or even because of our. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And and I know we 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 even mentioned going way back, the Cimmerillion, if we're talking about the Lord of the Rings, this idea that that he had this god that was that was messing up the music and trying to introduce all these things and and Tolkien had a way a way of taking this and saying okay the creator god was showing him the discord afterwards and said out of this i created ice and snow that was beautiful and he tried to ruin it by this and yet we create like all of this i don't know creation through destruction and then this idea that you know a volcano erupts and comes through and destroys all the life but out of that new islands are created and new life comes up and well, yeah know. we were looking at the when we were we were up in montana a couple of weeks ago and it's it's funny i had the same thought i was like think of how like it's just beautiful rolling valley into the next huge rolling valley and these gorgeous huge mountains and it's like all of this was created with absolute violence you know what I mean? Like <laughs> earthquakes true. and volcanoes and smashing and, you know what I mean? It's like, uh, and it's like the most beautiful thing that my eyes can possibly behold, all born through violence. Stars exploding. The, yeah. the, the earth is remnants of star guts. It's awesome. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. It's amazing what the Lord can do if we listen. Well, I mean, even, well, whatever. I'm just saying even like childbirth, you know, all of these things that are just bloody and violent. And and then new life is is born from that. It's just, I mean, I I love the I love kind of the the idea or the symbolism of of the the duality there. Yeah, and that's a duality we we seem to run into a lot in the scriptures. We talk about the waters of life, yet the waters of death, yeah. and this fire is being a sanctifier fire, and the thing that's going to torch all the people that aren't paying their tithing. Mm-hmm. Whether you go to heaven or hell, yeah. you're headed to the flames. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Wow, that's a good thing. That's kind of that's. I don't know if I like that or not. 
one way or the other, you're going through the fire. Eternal flames of glory, or yeah. that's so funny. Yeah, purify or destroy. It's it is interesting. This this next verse is something that I grew up with a lot. Uh, my dad quoted it. Always had it memorized. I'm sure uh, a lot of you out there. Uh, it's very similar. I, the Lord, am bound when you do what I say, but when you do not what I say, you, you have, have no, no promise. promise. Oh, yeah. It's, it's classic. It's a, it's powerful. The idea that this all-powerful being can be bound by you, like a genie in the lamp. And, may, and maybe that's where some of this genie in the lamp comes from, this idea that this powerful God is at your service, um, but it, only in the case that you do what he says. And and we've talked about this a little bit, I want to say. When when you make covenants in the ancient world, they, they would take animals to sacrifice. And, and so if a, a dominant country just just destroyed a smaller country in war, and what they would do is create terms for for the bigger country to protect the smaller one from their other neighbors. Like I I am the big one here. I will protect you. That's my responsibility. But in return, I expect you to pay tribute and you need to pay so much grain or so much animals. And and in making this agreement, they would take the animal, they would cut it in half, and they would and they would have the weaker party walk through between the two pieces, saying as a symbol, if I do not live up to the terms of this treaty, I will be destroyed because you're obviously the more powerful nation. You will destroy me just like you destroyed this animal. And when Abraham, when God was making a covenant with Abraham, he had Abraham sacrifice these animals. And Abraham sacrificed them and laid them all out and, and split the halves on either side, ready to, to walk between these two pieces. And he waited on the Lord. And and he waited all day. And and this is this is the Middle East. This is an area that's hot. I'm sure there were flies and, and he's sitting there shooting the flies away, trying to keep the sacrifice holy, waiting for the Lord to show up so that he can go through this. And when the Lord shows up, rather than requiring Abraham to walk between the pieces as the weaker party in the relationship, the Lord binds himself to Abraham by this pillar of fire that going through the pieces himself. The Lord is restricting him or putting these terms on him. I, the Lord, am bound by a covenant with you. I will do these things if you if you follow me. It's a powerful imagery to see that God taking that role. And, and I know we've gone here before, but God ultimately becoming man, subjecting himself to all things so that man might become God. So I, I love this verse. It's a great one. All right. Name changes. So this is uh, moving on to, to, let's see, what section is it? Is it 82 or 83? Still 82, right? Verse 8? Um, are we on an 83? Just a second, I'll tell you. Yeah, it's still 82. You're right. You're absolutely right. So... Here in this section, this is kind of the funny thing. The original revelation was was specifically mentioning Sidney Rigdon or or Oliver Oliver Cowdery, all of these people, uh, W. W. Phelps, Martin Harris. The original revelation all had the original names, but between the time that they received the revelation and the time that they printed the Book of Commandments in eighteen thirty five they decided that it would be in their best interest to change all of the names so that people didn't know who they were talking about. 
maybe for their own. So protection. they didn't have to throw people under the bus. Well, that's the funny thing because I, I I feel like they threw a lot of people under the oh, bus. Oh yeah, they did. <laughs> leading up to this point, and now they're like, hmm. And I don't know why they didn't change those names because it seems like some of those were a little bit more embarrassing. Yeah. But for whatever know. for whatever reason, they they were a little bit fearful that if this information went out and they knew who it was talking about, so so they created these names, and 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 these identities. Uh, Joseph Smith takes on a few different identities. He's called Enoch in some revelations, Gazlam in other revelations, and and these names. This is before Joseph Smith studied Hebrew. I, I, some of these names, I think, are just made up. They're, they're not all Hebrew. They're not revealed names. And, and in fact, Orson Pratt probably gives us the best look at where or, or understanding of this idea. He was uh, writing Brigham Young back and forth in the 1800s, 1850s, 18, late 1840s. He hated that the revelations were using these these names because he felt like it was misleading, it, it was confusing and unclear, and and it wasn't very. Oh, he's helpful. right. No, he's. I mean, he's <laughs> totally right on. He's yeah. very confusing. And so he wrote Brigham Young and asked for his permission to change Doctrine and Covenants back to the original names in the Revelation, and and he was saying he couldn't even remember all of the names that were made up. And he couldn't even remember all the names of who they were referring to. And so he asked for a list of the original revelations so he could sort this out and clarify it and, and make it more clear in the early edition of Doctrine and Covenants. Brigham Young gave his permission, so he, he had permission to do it. Unfortunately, when Orson uh, Pratt went to the, the publisher to try to change the names, it would require changing all of the plates uh, that used for printing and and it was too kind of burdensome a process, too costly to fix. Why didn't he use Microsoft Word? <laughs> I know printing has changed a lot. I mean, you literally then. had to hit backspace like five times. So it, it was uh, all the way up into the seventies. We had all of these weird names and doctrine and covenants until until it was changed not too long ago. And 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 so this is what Orson Pratt uh, wrote in the eighteen fifty three edition as a response for not being able to change the names and hoping to, to, to clear up some confusion to people. Okay. He says, All these names have reference to modern persons, places, and things of our day. Indeed, when these revelations the fir- were first received by the prophet Joseph, the real names were given, and it was not until months, and in regard to some, even years had passed away before the names were altered and others bearing an ancient appearance were substituted. We often had access to the manuscript. We often had access to the manuscripts when boarding with the prophet, and it was our delight to read them over and over again before they were printed. And so highly were they esteemed by us that we committed some to memory, and a few we copied for the purpose of reference in our absence on missions, and also to read them to the saints for their edification. These copies are still in our possession. When at length the time arrived to print the manuscripts, it was thought best not to publish them all on account of our enemies who were seeking every means to destroy the prophet and the church. On account, however, of the great anxiety of the church to see them in print, it was concluded that the suggestions of the Spirit, uh, through the suggestions of the Spirit, that by altering the real names given in the manuscripts and substituting fictitious ones in their stead, they might thus safely appear in print without endangering the welfare of the individuals whose real names were contained therein. So I I guess they were more concerned about physical safety than necessarily embarrassment. 
Um, it was by this means that several revelations were permitted to appear in print in the first edition that otherwise would have been withheld from the knowledge of the saints, perhaps for many long years, or at least until the more favorable circumstances would have permitted them to be made public. So that, that was his explanation for it. That makes sense. Yeah, it's, it's just kind of an interesting little deal. I don't think there's a lot of significance in the names. I don't either. But I, I, I can't help it, but Edward Partridge was named Alam. What? Uh, yeah, and, and Alam, so you know, it comes, it comes from the Hebrew, and, and the, the ayin is the first letter, is actually a guttural letter. And and people don't pronounce it anymore like they used to. So it's something like like I don't know. I I can't no, even say it no, right. Right. So, so so Joseph Smith when he learned Hebrew he tried to preserve that sound. You see it in Moses when he refers to eternity. He 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 spells it G N O L A U M Gnalum, Right. This gnalum. One of my favorite missionary companions was other Gnaliai. Oh rest, yeah. Rest in peace, my friend. G N A L I A. He's Polynesian, Samoan, I believe. Oh, but it was Naliai, but I could never pronounce it correctly. I'm still probably blowing it. Naliai is what we just called him, or Fano. I know we probably should have called him Elder, but we we might have gotten a little casual with some of our friends there. But yeah, the G N. I'm familiar. Yeah. So this uh, this guttural sound in Hebrew, this word means long duration, antiquity, or futurity. I can't help but think that. Um, so Tolkien, when he names his creature Gollum, he, he calls him Gollum because the throat, the sound he makes in his throat, the yeah, whatever. I, I think he's I think he's borrowing from the Hebrew when he calls him that. Hmm. So this Gollum means long, enduring antiquity from from a long wow. time ago, and Gollum's makes life, sense. yeah, is extended because of this ah, ring. That ring, man, lives for a long time. So I, I Edward Partridge was the original Gollum. Wow, man, I'm sure he's stoked about that. Edward Partridge, wherever you are. Original Gollum. The original Gollum. I hope that you're okay with that. (laughs) Dude, in the next life, we'll all know everybody, right? Yeah. I'm interested in asking Edward how he feels. I'll be like, Ed, how do you feel about that? I'm going to ask him. I'm making a mental note right now to ask Ed in the next life how he feels about that. The poor guy was persecuted pretty heavy, too. He was tarred and feathered. He was the first bishop of the church. Uh, he died five years before Joseph Smith, uh, a pretty young age. I think he was forty-six. Jeez. And and Joseph Smith suggested that the reason why he died at a younger age was because of all the stress from the persecution oh, yeah. in Missouri, the the things that he went through. And they were calling him Gollum. And he was called Gollum in Doctrine and Covenants. That's like the final. That's like the straw, right? That broke the camel's back. The poor guy. He's reading the Book of Commandments, and he's like, oh, man, everybody else got Enoch, <laughs> Pelagram, Pelagorum, Gazellum. I'm just Gollum. <laughs> he's Gollum. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Ed. Yeah. Rest in peace also. All right. Well, that's. I think that's all I'm going to say about these names. All right. Let's, uh, let's move to the very... Uh, I think the about the last thing we're going to talk about here, this idea that that Kirtland here it sets it forth as a stake. Um, verse fourteen, I believe it says, "For Zion must increase in beauty and in holiness; her borders must be enlarged, her stakes must be strengthened. 
Yea, verily I say unto you, Zion must arise and put on her beautiful garments. So this concept, I know a lot of times we think of Zion as independence, um, but it was it was so much more than that even early on in the church days. When, when they're talking about Kirtland, Ohio, how far away from, from independence is Kirtland, Ohio, and yet this is a stake of Zion. This is a part of Zion. And as we know today, Zion has spread to, to their stakes in Zion all over the entire world. And it, it's not just because the church has spread. That, I mean, from the very beginning, the Lord is saying, Zion must enlarge her, her, her tents. And then it talks about the beautiful garments. And so I wanted to take that in context of Isaiah chapter 3 and, and just kind of finish up with this concept of the garments of, of Zion being the people of Zion. How, how a nation is seen is by its people. When, when you judge a country, typically you're doing it by the people the stereotype of the people or what you imagine or you see of those people. So the people almost, in a sense, become the clothing of a country. So Isaiah chapter 3, this is also in 2 Nephi 13. For behold, this is verse 1, For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, doth take away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stay and the staff, the whole stay of bread and the whole stay of water, the mighty man and the man of war, the judge and the prophet, the prudent and the ancient, the captain of fifty and the honorable man and the counselor and the cunning artificer and the eloquent orator. So what's he doing? He's taking all of these away from Judah. And, and why is he taking these away from Judah? This is, this is they're going to be destroyed by their enemies. And, and it's the pride, the idea that these people, the, the blind are leaving, leading the blind. The, the, the judges, the prophets, the, the prudent, the ancient, these are the people that are supposed to be the finest of your society, the, the, the high class of society, your, your fine vestiture, your fine garments, if you will. And, and he's going to strip them away from it. Now, in the same chapter, he talks, he kind of switches gears a little bit, and he says... Let's see, verse 16. Moreover, moreover, the Lord saith, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with stretched forth necks and with wanton eyes and walking and mincing as they go and making a tinkling with their feet, therefore the Lord will smite with the scab the crown of the head of the daughter of Zion and the Lord will discover their secret parts. And in that day, the Lord will take away the bravery of their tinkling ornaments about their feet and their cowls and their round tires like the moon and the chains and the bracelets and the mufflers, the bonnets, the ornaments of the legs and the headbands and the tablets and the earrings, the rings and the nose jewelry, the changing suits of apparel and the mantles and the wimples and the crisping pins, the glasses. And, and I thought I went too far sometimes. I mean, he's going into some pretty, pretty elaborate detail. The fine linen, the hoods and the veils, and it shall come to pass that instead of sweet smell, and he's talking about all of these things being taken away, this idea that Zion or Israel was the bride of, of God, and, and her clothing, her pride is the prophets, the wise men, the captain of 50, the people that are supposed to be protecting everybody, the people that are supposed to be watching out for them, guiding them, directing them, yet they've become like all of these fancy jewelry 
where they're proudful, they're arrogant, and and they're taking the focus away from the Lord onto things that don't matter. And the Lord is going to strip all of them and discover their nakedness. And, and we've talked about Adam and Eve, this idea when Adam and Eve partook of the fruit, they saw that they were naked. They've lost something and, and they've discovered their nakedness and they want to hide and cover themselves. And the Lord, in the end, when he atones from them, puts garments on. He creates coats of skin to cover their nakedness. So Zion, the same type of deal. When Zion apostatized, the Lord cut off all of their beautiful garments, all of these important people, and stripped them naked, and they were exposed, his bride, his wife. Not that wearing makeup's a bad thing, not that jewelry's a bad thing, because what does the Lord say? What I want Zion to arise, and not just arise, but I want to clothe her in beautiful garments. There's supposed to be beauty in wise men, in, in counselors, in prophets, in captains, and all of these beautiful people. There is beauty there, and, and it's okay to wear beautiful things, but the beauty comes in, I, I, I don't know, the, 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 not in, in the vain, not in the proud, but in the, the, the praising of God. Totally. I, I, that's incredible insight into that. And I'm also stressed out that it, for the first time in my entire life, actually clicked of why we call steaks steaks. Like oh, yeah? The tent steaks. Yeah, I'm really frustrated that it's taken this long. I never thought about it for longer than five minutes before. And then when you explained it, I was just like, oh, yeah, I guess that's probably why we call these things steaks. Heaven forbid I spend five minutes to try to figure out why we call wards wards, but at least steak makes sense to me now. Steaks do make sense. I just now I just feel like a total idiot that I'm today's years old that I actually just figured that out. No, you should feel awesome because anything you figure out, you're that much further. Yeah, ahead but this one seems yesterday. like it's probably something I should have figured out when I was fifteen. <laughs> well, um, enlarge in your steaks. There you go. Make Zion beautiful again. And how do you make Zion beautiful? By being the best you, I do. Yeah, I I think the thing is, I, what I when it talks about all of the jewelry and the expensive stuff, because we we read a lot of the similar language in Alma, when a lot of the, and and in Nephi too, right? Mm-hmm. When a lot of the when when pride starts catching up, when, well, when you serve the Lord, a lot of the things that come with that are peace. Peace leads to affluence. Affluence leads to pride, right? And it, or at least the cycle of that yeah, appears to happen cycle, huh? over and over, right? But it's interesting because, again, like I, like you said, there's the duality in all of these things, right? Like if you are if you are dressing yourself up in all of this costly apparel to show off your affluence, to to visually establish your dominance over somebody else or your betterness than somebody else you know, to, to gratify your own pride, it's a problem. When you wear tinkly things so that people can hear you coming down the street to know, to look at you, to see how expensive you are, then it's a problem, right? But God, on the other hand, is saying, no, 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 be beautiful and and I will adorn you in glory, which is which is not just superficial 
and it's not about it it's not a pride thing at that point that's god basically adorning us like as you know jewels in his crown right i yes. think this is the difference right and like you said how do we do that well i think we do that by being good neighbors and serving people and loving people and like you said having yeah having the wise men with us and having prophets and things with us and you just said it i think even more so like like beautifying our communities you know beautifying our neighborhoods and and it's why i feel like we we spend money to build temples it's why we you know whatever i guess i'm just saying the lives that we lead i feel like make us beautiful you know not on a very superficial level and it's to praise god and not bring praise upon ourselves i think that's it and and you said it so well just by praising god not so much ourselves because i think of like you said the tinkling is to make it so that you hear them when they're coming right this this idea that the purpose of makeup isn't to to make someone who's not beautiful beautiful it's to accentuate the beauty that's already there right but but when the ornaments become more beautiful than the person this idea look yeah. at me look at the tinkling <laughs> look at the sparkling look at all of this rather than look at the person because they think they're more important than yes. the person or better than that person yeah yeah when it becomes all about the jewelry and not about accentuating the person wearing the jewelry and and that is Christ when when they forget Christ and and all of these wise people think that they are special without Christ think that they look at me how smart i am or how much i know or what i understand and and they don't they're not connected to that vine and they're not bringing people back to Christ to worship Christ they're misleading people trying to get them to follow them rather than follow Christ then Christ is going to cut all of that off and strip his beautiful bride naked because all of those things are missing the point. She's she's focused so much on all of these jewelry, all these things that don't matter rather than trying to beautify what's already there. And to try to, like you said, give the glory to God. It's the, yeah. Again, the original problem. Um, awesome. Good stuff, Jason. Um, what are we talking about next week? Next week is one of my favorite sections of all Doctrine and Covenants. It, it, there's a few I give that to. 76, 121, um, and 88, and t- next week is 84. Oh, that's a good one. 84 is the Oath and Covenant of the Priesthood, and we get to talk of the, about the priesthood and about Moses and kind of the history of the priesthood, where it's going. And it, I don't know. I'm Fantastic. excited. Fantastic. That's going to be fun. All right. Well, everybody, thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email us at hi, right? Hi at hi weeklydeepdive.com. Weekly dive. And um, with that, we will sign off for this week. Until next week. See ya. See ya.